Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another Stay at Home Sunday morning podcast. Today we are going to continue our journey through the book of Judges together. Uh, We are looking mostly in Judges chapter 1 at an account of unfinished business by the tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel had been given the promised land by God, and he had commissioned them. Uh, Through Moses and on through Joshua's leadership, God had commissioned uh, Israel to to drive out all of the Canaanite people. Unfortunately, this isn't what they did. Uh, Throughout the book of Joshua, as we've mentioned before, we have a theme of obedience and victory. In fact, for the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua, we just have victory after victory after victory. Victory here, victory there, victory everywhere, as the Israelites obey God and do everything that God tells them to do. We even have accounts of total victory, things like they wiped everyone out. They didn't leave a single one of them alive. And then, though, in Joshua chapter 13, we have a list of territories and people that weren't wiped out. Sometimes people will point to the, these differing accounts and say that this, this is an example of the Bible contradicting itself, or this is an example of why Scripture is not reliable. But the reality is, in these stories, there's a couple of things going on. The Bible's telling both sides of the story. On the one hand, Joshua's great. He's obedient. God blesses him. He crushed a lot of enemies. He demolished a lot of flo- foes. If we were saying it in modern times, we might say he cleaned their clocks. But everyone knows when someone says that someone cleaned another's clocks, that no actual clock was cleaned. That's just how we say he won. Incidentally, in historical conquest narratives, people didn't say that someone cleaned someone's clock, but they would say things all the time, like, we totally won. It was a complete victory. We wiped them all out. Not a single person was left alive. And when they said that, similar to when someone says, I cleaned their clock, they didn't necessarily mean that not a single person was left alive. They're just communicating that their side won the victory. In the same way that it would be inappropriate to leverage charges of lying on someone who claimed that clocks were cleaned, uh, we can read Joshua's account as true without getting hung up on the idea that there were still Canaanites alive and that there were still Canaanites in the land after he had done everything that God had told him to. In fact, when we have accounts like in Joshua 13, where it describes everything that wasn't finished, it should be giving us even greater confidence in the account's historical accuracy. The Bible's willing to acknowledge its author's defeats and failures as well as their successes, which is a rare thing in historical literature and and really makes the whole story more credible and compelling. So in Joshua, we see examples of hyperbolic, Uh, conquest narrative writing, but we also see the author taking time to to acknowledge the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation was, after Joshua's leadership, even with his obedience, there was still regions left to conquer and people left to drive out of the promised land. 
And that story continues in the book of Judges. And so we read about uh, the tribes of Israel's attempt to drive these people out of their land in Judges chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Jump down to verse 21, we see the Benjamites, also similar to the men of Judah, could not drive out the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the people living in Jerusalem, and to this day, the Jebusites are living there with the Benjamites. Skip down a little more to verse 27, we see Manasseh didn't drive the people out. Uh, verse 29, we see Ephraim struggled to drive the Canaanites out, didn't drive them out. Verse 30, Zebulun didn't drive them out. Verse 31, Asher didn't drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali didn't drive them out either. And at the end of this passage, we see that the Amorites are still living in the hill country where the tribe of Dan was supposed to be, and uh, they hadn't driven them out of there as well. And then it ends with this account of uh, when the power of the tribes, end of verse 35, when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too would press the Canaanites into forced labor. And we see mention of that all throughout this chapter of the tribes of Israel enslaving the Canaanites rather than driving them out. And so again, Joshua, everywhere we turn, we see victory, we see, you know, total annihilation, complete victory. And then in the book of Judges, everywhere we turn, we are finding unfinished business. Tribes that couldn't quite get it done. Now, why couldn't they drive the Canaanites out? Well, because it was difficult. Now, oftentimes when we, th I think, think of the conquest of Canaan, we, we imagine the Israelites as this advanced society, you know, great weapons, a highly evolved uh, form of government, and, and, and they're against these unorganized barbarian hordes of Canaanites. And yet the reality of the situation was that when Israel went into the promised land, you know, following God's directions to Moses and Joshua, that it was the Israelites who were the, the primitive barbarians. They, they were wandering through the desert. They were a wandering society of nomads, uh, they came in, and, and they came in to establish cities and cultures that had metal weapons when they're coming in with their sticks. And, and uh, it, it's really, I think, a lot different than how the modern-day Christian might conceptualize it in their mind. And so it was difficult. They had no chance apart from God uh, working on their behalf, and their lack of obedience uh, really limited God's uh, desire to work on their behalf. Anyhow, they dropped the ball. So you have certain tribes starting to drop the ball. And I would imagine as one tribe drops the ball, other tribes start dropping the ball as well. It's just, it's too easy to do. When you're, when you're in a situation where the momentum is quickly building towards not getting stuff done, it becomes more and more difficult to get stuff done. And then you've got a few of these tribes deciding to enslave some of the Canaanites who they've failed to drive them out. What are we going to do with them? Well, I know. Let's turn them into slaves. Of course, the problem with this is that now there's no way these people are getting driven out because not only do the 
Canaanites not want to leave, but the Israelites aren't going to want the Canaanites to leave now either, because if they do leave, they're going to lose all of this free labor. Who's going to do all these undesirable tasks if our slaves are taken away? The real irony in this situation, of course, if you look back just two books in the Bible to the Exodus, we know that these Israelites who are now enslaving the Canaanites were just a couple of generations earlier were living as slaves in Egypt. And we see here God empowers his people. Instead of doing the hard things that God had empowered them for, he'd empowered them to to drive the nations out of the promised land. Instead of using their empowerment to do that, they leverage their power and their failure to drive people out into influence and into an opportunity to enslave their fellow human beings. Now, I imagine the conversations that were happening in Israel back in that day. You know, maybe some Ephraimites are gathered around uh, talking about how poorly their cousins, the Asherites, did at securing the land. You imagine them saying things like, yes, those lazy Asherites, they left their territory just crawling with Canaanites. Can you believe it? They didn't do everything God told them to do. Yeah, they're just the worst. And then one asks the other one, well, hey, how did you get your crops planted so quickly this year? And he says, oh, I actually got myself some Canaanite slaves. And the other Ephraimite agrees, yes, yes, I I got some Canaanite slaves too. Isn't it a blessing to have some free labor here in the promised land? Yes, yes, God has really blessed us with the ability to overcome these Canaanites and make them our slaves. You can see here, we're in a real predicament when our unfinished business is suddenly classified as uh, a blessing from God or grace from God. You know, I have no doubt that the tribes of Israel who turned to enslaving the Canaanites rather than driving them out, I'm sure, I have no doubt, they thought that they had much to gain from this free forced labor. I mean, the, the lie that we have something to gain from wronging our neighbor is, is one of the most often believed lies in human history. And yet, as they invited the Canaanites into their households to serve them, their own households became poisoned with the worship of these Canaanite gods, and their own souls became poisoned with the lie that their brother or sister, their created fellow human being, was somehow less than them. You know, if only Israel could have understood that in owning slaves, they were actually subjecting themselves to a greater and more dangerous bondage than when they were slaves themselves in Egypt. You know, the canonization of their faith in God, when they suddenly had cultural reasons to invite certain things into their relationship with God, like slavery, things that never should exist there. The canonization of their faith suddenly had them calling these curses a blessing and even striving to enslave others or religiously justifying the enslavement of others. Of course, in our country, with our dark history of slavery, we have seen that kind of canonization of the Christian faith on display, where people would twist Scripture into justifying uh, their right to enslave another human being. 
at the beginning of Judges chapter 2, God looks at this scenario, all of this unfinished business and this license for sin, and he says, enough. We read in Judges 2 that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I have also said, or I have now said, I am not going to drive them out before you. They're going to become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. So the angel of the Lord speaks to Israel and says, You have made choices. Choices to not do the hard things that I've called you to do. Choices to use the empowerment that I've given you to mistreat and not to do the things I've called you to do, but to do the things that you thought would give you greater comfort and ease in life. He says, because of all of this, I am no longer fighting your battles for you. And I'm telling you, these people that you have chosen to keep around to serve you, they are becoming traps for you and their gods are going to be a snare for you. And these stories have been preserved through time as a warning for us. That we should not kid ourselves, that we can be a lot like the Israelites, not fully obeying, allowing sin to linger in our lives because it's just too hard to drive it all out. As God blesses us and empowers us, using that empowerment for our own comfort or our own gain rather than using it to do the things that God has called us to do. Like the Israelites, we can feel entitled and justified in our own sin while we're maybe quick to condemn others over their sin. Oftentimes in the modern church, I think the most heated debates center on which sins we're willing to tolerate and which sins we want to kick people out for. And I love the language there from the beginning of Judges chapter 2 of snares because we talk about sin, we talk about sinful attitudes, sinful appetites, and they're all snares, and all snares kill. So who wants to waste time deciding which ones to tolerate or which ones to kick people out for? I mean, they're all death. It's all death. Let's just figure out how to escape them all together. You know, as we look at the account of Judges, one thing that stands out to me is not a single tribe got it all right. And when we look at the church today, I think one of the most common mistakes we will make is that we will presume that we or that our church or our group is the one that's getting it all right. That we are the ones without sin, that we are the one few people who are entitled uh, because we're without sin to cast the first stone. And if we're not convinced of that, we're at least convinced that our sin isn't as bad as those other people around us. God's intention for Israel, as we've said before, was two things. That they would be wholly devoted to him. And that through their devotion to him, their relationship with him, they would become uh, the human vehicle through which God's goodness and his presence would be shared with the world around them. We know that Israel failed in this. They could not be fully devoted to God. And so there were mixed results in terms of them being a beacon of God's goodness. But the gospel teaches us that Jesus came 
to do what Israel could not do. Jesus came to fulfill for humanity what humanity couldn't do for itself. And so in Jesus, we have a human being who is wholly devoted to God. And in Jesus, we have a human vehicle through which God's goodness and his grace is imparted into the world. And the invitation to the modern follower of Jesus is to join him in that mission. As Jesus is fully devoted to God, we are to join him in that, to be a people who take up our cross daily and live by the Holy Spirit, a life that is wholly devoted to God, not to ourselves, not to our own comfort, not to our own advantage, but devoted to God and to his kingdom. And then as Jesus is the human vehicle through which God's goodness is poured out into the world, we as the body of Christ are meant to be the human vehicle through which God's goodness is imparted into the world around us. And our results in that endeavor will always be mixed if we are if we are compromised in our devotion to God, and particularly when we're compromised by our own hospitable attitude toward our own sinful tendencies. And so today, I just want to take an opportunity to address any unfinished business we might have in our own lives, to take some time to go before the Lord and say, Lord, search my heart. Is there anything in there that is evil? Is there, is there any attitude? Is there any appetite? Is there any action that I need to repent of, that I need to flee from? And as the Holy Spirit gives us insight into ourselves, we resolve to flee those things and to live wholly devoted to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your grace, for your love for us. We thank you for these stories that remind us uh, who we are and how much we need you. We ask that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts and would allow us to complete the unfinished business we may have to do this week. We trust you, we trust your goodness, and we trust your faithfulness to bring us through. In Jesus' name, amen.